Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. We're starting today's show out on a hiking trail. This isn't just any trail, though. It's the Pacific Crest Trail, or the PCT. And it runs the length of California, stretching 2,600 miles from Mexico to Canada. So that's our PCT landmark. On this dirt trail in the Sierra, you can see the PCT insignia nailed to a short wooden post. We're in far northern California, on the western edge of Plumas County, and we're smack dab in the middle of the Dixie Fire burn scar. Brenda Broughton, who lives a mile or so up the road from here, is leading this hike. Okay, you see right here, we've got fire damage coming up through here, but this did not burn as hot as it did at our house, thankfully. If there's one thing you gotta know about Brenda, it's that she's an optimist. She can find the positive in just about anything even in the middle of a burned-out section of her favorite hiking trail. It used to be a green tunnel, and now you've got a wide vista looking at the positive. But even Brenda, who's lived and hiked around here for decades, has got to work pretty hard to find much else that's positive in the aftermath of the Dixie Fire. It burned more than 100 miles of trail here a couple years ago. This stretch of the PCT was closed for months after the fire. And since it's reopened, the trail just hasn't been the same. It's always in your face that, yeah, that tree is dead. That's dead. I'm Sasha Coca. Today on the California Report magazine, we look at how the Dixie Fire and other fires like it are affecting the PCT and the communities that depend on it. Reporter Dana Cronin recently hiked a leg of the trail herself. She wanted to see the ripple effects of the fire on one trail town that survived the blaze. I've always had this almost morbid curiosity about the PCT, and not just because of Cheryl Strayed's popular memoir, Wild, which, full disclosure, I have read. I love hiking, but almost 3,000 miles? Six months of living out of a backpack? I don't think so. And let me be very clear. I only hiked about two of the PCT's 2,600 miles. The real reason I'm here is to visit a tiny town called Belden. The PCT cuts right through it. Yeah, you come down at the Belden rest stop where we saw that trailhead sign across the bridge and then down House Road past the schoolhouse and then swing up over the railroad track. And that's about all there is to Belden. 
It's a tiny town made up of a motel slash bar, an abandoned schoolhouse, and an RV park up the road. Only a handful of people live here full time. Belden is beautiful, nestled in a canyon along a windy Highway 70 with the North Fork Feather River running right through it and train tracks carved into the mountain above. Brenda and her husband, Lori, grew up around here. They've always been drawn to nature and to hiking. You get to the trailhead, you park, you get your backpack on, you start walking, and within quarter of a mile, all of a sudden, it's just like this relief. Yes, this is where I belong. They've done a lot of long-distance hiking, including along the PCT. So when it came time for them to retire, they knew they wanted to move closer to the trail, to hike it, but also to help other hikers. Their goal for retirement was to become what's known in the hiking community as trail angels. On one visit to a potential property, they ran into a hiker. And we mentioned that we were looking for property along the Pacific Crest Trail, and one of the places was Belden. And he said, oh, Belden, Belden really needs people. If you can go to, go Belden, to Belden, go to Belden. We need you at Belden. And that was kind of convincing to us that yeah. there's a need. So they bought a house in Belden, about a mile up the road from the trail, and were officially at the hiker's beck and call to give them rides to the post office, to pick up resupply packages, provide a meal, a shower, even a place to stay if they wanted it. They helped sick and injured hikers. We've had uh, giardia, Lyme's Lyme disease. disease. Epilepsy. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Seizure. Then came the Dixie Fire. Brenda and Lori remember staying up all night and watching from their living room as the fire came over the mountainside and dropped down closer and closer to their house until finally they decided to leave. It's a miracle that Cal Fire kept this house standing because everything along that road burnt to a cinder. Everything a mile up was burnt. After being evacuated for three weeks, they returned to a transformed canyon. Instead of lush green forest, the land was charred black with dead trees as far as the eye could see. Their house was mostly spared, although the hiker unit, a little cabin where hikers used to stay, burned. And they've hardly seen any hikers in the two years since the fire. This will not be on anybody's uh, radar, particularly after people post on Facebook, TikTok, whatever, social media. Oh, this was a burned out section. It was hot. It was nasty. Who's going to want to come here? When Lori and I hiked this section um, in 2004, it was the prettiest place in the universe. The Dixie Fire nearly wiped the PCT here off the map. But with a lot of work, the trail has mostly been repaired, and it reopened within a year of the fire. The town of Belden, though, hasn't been so lucky. Down the street from Brenda and Lori is the Belden Town Resort and Lodge, which is pretty much the main attraction in town. The place is pretty deserted. I cannot, cannot find anyone. No signs of life. It's the middle of the afternoon. It's hot and the place is dead. The resort is charming in an old-timey way, albeit kind of outdated. 
It's perched right next to the river with green grass and a beautiful outdoor seating area. The PCT cuts right through here, down the concrete driveway that runs alongside the motel. Eventually, I find my way into the Belden Town Bar. It's empty and dark, with wooden floors and creaky stools. Old posters and taxidermy cover the walls. A football game blares in the background. As I'm settling in, three hikers wander through the door. Hello. <laughs> you can almost smell them before you see them. They plop down their big backpacks and settle in at the bar, where they eagerly order three cheeseburgers and a round of beers. Once they're done eating, they introduce themselves using their real and trail names. My name is Jonathan Horwitz, and my trail name is Whistler. I'm uh, Charles Huffmeister, and I go by Vane. My real name is Sawyer, and my trail name is Squeeze. The trio met in Canada at the beginning of their hike. I asked them what made them stop in Belden. Well, two of us are out of food, <laughs> so we had to stop here or else we weren't going to make it much further. And boy, did they stock up. After the cheeseburgers, tater tots, and ice cream bars, they each filled a grocery basket of snacks and dehydrated food from the little market attached to the bar. The last hundred or so miles hiking through the burn scar have been rough, Jonathan said. It's quite miserable. For one, there's no shade. So on days like today when it's very hot and you're sweaty, there's no place to take a break and have a rest. Every time you want to sit down, it's ashy and your hands just get black and your clothes just get black. And when you set up camp, you get everything, your, your jackets, your tent, just dirty with ash. And not all hikers are willing to put up with those conditions. In fact, they started up in Canada with a group of about 30 hikers. Now there are five. The rest of them skipped over the burn scar. This type of hiking, where you skip over burned out or inconvenient sections of the trail, is called cherry picking. And it's becoming increasingly common, even necessary, along the PCT. We are now saying, really for the first time in our history, that doing a continuous through-hike of every mile of the trail from beginning to end is almost impossible. Scott Wilkinson is with the Pacific Crest Trail Association, which helps maintain the trail. He says just in the last year, sections of the trail have been closed because of record snowpack in the Sierras and even a hurricane in Southern California. These disasters, fueled by climate change, are transforming California's iconic, almost mythical trail. It's a big loss, Scott says. For years, that has really been the standard. That's, that's been the famous journey that people from all over the world come here to do. It's what people plan for for years of their lives. It's a very big deal. And it's a big deal for trail towns like Belden that rely on the hikers to survive. As a super rural town, Belden only has so many revenue streams. On an average year, whenever conditions are right, I'd say we have two to 3,000 hikers come through here. And I'd have to say this year I've seen, and it's just an estimate, but maybe, you know, four to 500. This is Ivan Kaufman, who owns the Belden Town Motel. He says two years since the Dixie Fire, he's still struggling to recover. 
it's not always a money-making proposition. Sometimes it's a losing proposition. But uh, normally we would have, you know, we would have uh, two bartenders and two waitresses and a cook. And right now we have one or two people doing all that. Tabitha Burton is the bartender here, and waitress, and cook. She says since the hikers dropped off, she's making less money than she used to. I used to open at 11 o'clock, now I'm opening at 4 p.m. So that's five hours difference. It's a lot of money going out the window. At this point, you might be wondering why Tabitha and Ivan and Brenda and Lori still live here. How do they stick it out with trail tourism drying up to a trickle? They find a way. Take Tabitha. Her house burned down in the Bear Fire a year before the Dixie Blaze. So she bought a trailer and set up at an RV park up the road. Then the Dixie Fire displaced her again, but she came back. She says Belden is her home. She loves the community here. It's its own entity, that's for sure. It's definitely um, welcomes anybody, for sure. Partiers, definitely welcome. Bikers, welcome. Jonathan, the PCT hiker, walks by with his ice cream bar. <laughs> These sweaty, dirty hikers. Hey, we love you guys. Thank you. Tabitha calls herself a canyon person. She says it's nice to be away from crowded cities. There's more freedom out here. It's beautiful, and she meets all kinds of people working here. We definitely get all breeds. All breeds. I love this bar by Toby Keith. That's this bar. That's this bar. <laughs> Toby Keith's song, I Love This Bar, does paint a pretty good picture. We got winners. We got losers. Chain smokers and boozers. And we got yuppies. We got bikers. And we've got thirsty hitchhikers. Belden is certainly going through a rough patch in the aftermath of the Dixie Fire. But it's still going and has found other ways to make up for the lack of hiker income. For one, most of the people staying at the Belden Motel right now are construction workers who are fixing the canyon's main highway. It was damaged in a series of landslides caused by the intense rain after the fire. Belden also hosts music festivals throughout the summer. And I'm not talking about small, intimate festivals. These are big electronic dance music raves where thousands of people descend on the tiny town and camp out for days. Well, they're pretty hectic. They, you know, they're a lot like Burning Man or whatever. It's hard to imagine that many people and stages set up here, but Ivan says it's a big economic boon for the town. And for now, he's making it work. Right before I leave Belden, I'm chatting with Brenda and Lori on their porch near the highway, looking up into the Dixie Burn Scar. I ask them about that term Tabitha mentioned, canyon people. I, like, I've heard people throw the term canyon people around. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, to me, a canyon person is somebody who is um, of a mindset full of uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, kind of independent. Um, uh, the community will come together and we will solve our problem. 
With or without the PCT, Belden will do what small towns do best, look after each other, come together, and figure out a way through. That was reporter Dana Cronin in Plumas County. Next up, we're going to head to Fresno to try some gorditas. The way I explain them to people who've never had them, it's almost like a taco, but the tortilla becomes a very thick tortilla. And instead of having the filling or the meat on top, we just slice it in the middle and we fill it. This is Lizette Lopez, who runs Lucy's Gorditas. It's a tiny restaurant, it's got just one table, and it's near the Veterans Hospital in Fresno. Lizette makes the gordita fillings from scratch. The picadillo is a ground beef that we simmer in a chili sauce. And then we have a chicharron prensado, which is, it's more like a carnitas mixed with the pork skin and the rind, and they kind of compress it and you break it apart. And we stew that in also a chili sauce. At the cash register, there's a photo on the counter. It's got a light purple background, a gilded silver frame, and a woman with short highlighted hair dressed up for the photo in a white fur stole. Who is she? Well, our intern Olivia Zhao visited Lucy's Gorditas for our series flavor profile to find out. At the beginning of the pandemic, Lizette Lopez was working as a data analyst in San Francisco. She was pregnant. And during lockdown, she and her husband decided to move back to Fresno, where she grew up, to have her baby. My mom helped me those first few weeks. She stayed with us and helped me and taught me whatever she could at that point. Lizette says her mom, Maria Lucille, who everybody called Lucy, always made her feel supported. Caring for other people had always been Lucy's calling. When she first moved to California from Mexico, she started by cleaning a convalescent home. Later, she helped cook and clean for kids with special needs. And she had been working for in-home support services for almost 35 years with older people who need help cleaning, cooking, and going to the hospital. And she loved it because she became friends with all the people she helped. Lisette says Lucy's clients adored her because she had such a dynamic personality. She was just the life of the party. That's really who my mom was. Sometimes, the children of the older people she cared for would come and visit, and they were really impressed by Lucy's cooking, too. And then they would say, oh, can you tell her to cook me some? I'll pay her even, like, if she can cater for me to take to my office. So she did. And her catering quickly got popular by word of mouth. Lucy started dreaming of opening an actual restaurant, but Lizette and her six brothers didn't think she was serious. We'd always be like, oh, mom, come on, you're not going to do it. And she's like, yeah, find me a place. You'll see. You'll see I'll do it. Life was busy, and somehow Lucy never got around to pursuing that dream. In fact, she passed away during the pandemic. It was a shock to everyone. Lucy had diabetes, and she developed an infection in her leg, which she didn't take too seriously at first. It was early in COVID, so she was scared to go to the hospital. By the time she was rushed there, the infection had spread, and it was too late. When they disconnected her, they only allowed two people to go in there, and the rest of us had a FaceTime. So because I had gone in before, I I let my youngest brother because he didn't spend as much time with her. It all happened so fast. 
and the whole family was still reeling from it when the oldest brother's birthday came up. And during our birthdays, my mom would always call us a couple days before and say, "What do you want me to make you for your birthday?" This time, he asked for gorditas. So I, you know, I was like, "I'll try to make them. They're not going to come out nice and round like mom's, but I'll try my best." They came out really well, and that gave her the idea to open a restaurant. And my mom always wanted to open one anyway, so I was like, "It's a good way to honor her." Lizette has always enjoyed cooking. From a very young age, her mom would set her up at the kitchen table and ask her to cut the vegetables or beat the eggs. But Lucy was always very secretive about her recipes. Even Lizette, her own daughter, couldn't get them. Yeah, I think part of it was her just joking and giving us a hard time. And part of it was probably because Lucy thought she had all the time in the world. And I think she thought, oh, once I'm older and I'm sitting here, then I'll just tell them how to make it. But Lizette wanted her mom's cooking to live on in Fresno, so now she's trying to replicate those recipes from memory. Lucy was from Durango in northern Mexico. It's a very mountainous region where there used to be lots of mining. Sometimes miners just needed a quick bite. When I think of a perfect gordita, I always think of when I'm eating them in Durango, in a small town. You know, when the lady comes out in a basket and just takes them to your car, and you buy five and you eat them. Every morning, Lizette comes to the restaurant, and the first thing she does is to make a big batch of corn flour dough called masica. Then she adds a little bit of baking powder to help it rise. Just a little pinch. Then some vegetable oil so that the dough doesn't stick to the grill, and water so the dough isn't too dry or too runny. And then you just start kneading it. And so you knead it until you hear a very specific sound. Basically, it's like air bubbles, little popping sound. That's when you know the dough is ready. Then she covers it with plastic wrap and lets it sit for five or ten minutes. Finally, the flattened dough goes to the grill. It starts to puff and rise up, like it's too hot to stand still. My mom always said, "You only flip it once. Flip it again. You let it be." Let it rise. Once it rises, Lizette uses a spatula to slice open the thickest part and scoops the filling into the pocket. Voila, a gordita is done, and I, for one, can't wait to try it. Is it hot? It's hot. It's really crispy and spicy. I love it. Monica Rini loves it too. She passed up another Mexican restaurant to come eat here. Oh, three chorizo、um, gorditas. Just for me. <laughs> I'll eat all three of those. Maurice Mattis heard about this place from a friend. I like spots like this, more homely spots. You know what I'm saying? Not so commercial. Okay, that'll be ten eighty-four. That's it for two for enough to feed two people.、Mm-hmm. Oh, so you guys got to raise your prices a little bit. You ain't gonna make <laughs> you it. You know, you're not the first person to you're see that. You're not gonna、that. make it. Lizette is trying to keep the gorditas affordable while keeping the family business afloat. She runs the restaurant during the week. Her brothers take over on the weekends. And like in any family business, there are ups. And dogs. Well, I have, have a lot of brothers, so there's cliques, there's fights, there's arguments. We'd always joke, "Oh, the customers are here just to listen to us arguing." <laughs> For Lizette, who dreamed of living in big cities like San Francisco and LA when she was younger, coming back to Fresno was a humbling experience. A lot of people, when you're growing up, a lot of the feeling is leaving the community and and never coming back to Fresno. It's always when you're in high school, you know, your dream is like, oh, where am I gonna live? But now that she's back, 
Lizette finds herself falling in love with the small city of Fresno all over again. She remembers regulars' names and orders. Some customers see her mom's photo by the cash register and tell her they used to know Lucy, who, despite the glamorous photo, did one of the hardest jobs, taking care of old and sick people, and who couldn't get her own health care in time during COVID. They also tell Lizette stories of people they've lost during the pandemic and how comforting it is to eat Lucy's gorditas. Those kinds of conversations might never happen in a big city. That was The California Report's intern, Olivia Zhao, with the latest in our series, Flavor Profile, about people pivoting to start food businesses during the pandemic. And now we're headed to Solano County to a library. There's some books in this house. There's some books in this house. Certified geek. Reading books seven days a week. Michael Threets is the librarian at Fairfield Civic Library. He grew up going to this library, and now he runs it. And he's become internet famous for the videos he makes about his library. Another kid who's been watching the whole time goes over to them and says, Hi, I know Spanish. Can we all read the book together? And then that kid who knows Spanish starts reading the book to the other two little kids. Michael's Um, posts on social media talk about the library system, banned books, and the importance of mental health awareness. He's got hundreds of thousands of followers. And I love it. I am now confident that library kids are going to save the world. Yes. Our friend Pendarvis Harsha over at KQED's Right Nowish podcast interviewed Michael about what makes libraries so special and why they're important right now. Was there a specific moment for you as a young adult where it clicked the significance of this library? The books were my very first friend. Um, it, it sounds cliche to say, but it's very true. That's, I was one of those kids that books meant the world to me because it was hard for me to make friends, let alone as a homeschool kid, but as a shy, introverted, anxious kid, it was even more difficult. So this library was special, and I felt safe, safe here from as early as I could remember, and I've always felt that way in libraries everywhere I go. You are welcome. You belong in the library. I'm happy you're here. I feel like I've said the word belong a hundred thousand times since all these videos took off, but like it's so it's so special to me that that is what the library is for. You could be unhoused, you could be mentally ill, you can be a kid, teenager, growing up without kids. The library is a place for you. It's a place where you can be your authentic self, uh, whatever that means to you. You're very almost profoundly upfront about the intersection of mental health and your work, and I'm wondering why is it important for you to share your story first. So it was important for me to share my story of mental health just because I didn't have any such stories um, when I was when I was a kid. Having anxiety at the age of eight, it's not something I knew what it was. Being 33, mental health was still very stigmatized when I was a kid. So I do want to talk about mental health just to, just to normalize it, just to show people that it's okay to not be okay. I made a, a silly remix of Get Low by Little John and said like 369, it's okay to not be fine. 369! It's okay to not be fine. Hope you can crush this day one more time. So I think me talking about it just shows people that there's other people out there that are suffering but are still persevering, that are still um, surviving and even being successful because I've been a library worker for 10 years. So I think talking about mental health just shows people that that it's okay to not be okay. You can keep on going. 
I hear just people telling me like how much it helps that me and my library staff say hello to them on a daily basis where people have literally told us like, oh, you guys saved my life like just by saying hi, like you guys actually care, like we're actually important to you. That was Solano County Librarian Michael Threets on the Right Now-ish podcast. If you want to learn more about Michael's work, definitely check out the full episode on Right Now-ish, where they dive into the conversation about media literacy and banned books. Special thanks to Marisol Medina Cadena, Maya Cueva, Chris Hambrick, and Christopher Beal for their help with this story. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Susie Racho is our producer director. Our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. And our intern is Olivia Zhao. And I'm Sasha Koka. You can check out all of our California stories on our podcast, The California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randadid Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.